Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Happy New Year to all our listeners and subscribers. Brendan here with Mark, as usual, vetgurus.com. And hopefully, Mark, our listeners enjoyed our little, it probably wasn't little, our long Christmas special and our New Year's Eve special. But we're back into it. Episode 223, Friday, January the 7th, 2022, Mark. Happy New Year to you. Whenever you say... January 2022 it sounds like we've, we're in the future like those those years those dates I never thought oh no it just seems like we're living yes. in the future Brennan we're living in the future Mark we are living in the future and gee interesting um, hopefully you caught up with some family and friends over the Christmas new and I still know still and you might want to chat a little bit about it in our main topic, what you're up to at the moment. So perhaps we leave that to the main topic. Um, it fits perfectly with our main topic this episode. Um, but otherwise, hopefully you caught up with a few people. We caught up, we did a traditional Christmas lunch at my the Outlaws, Mark, um, and his parents. Um, and, and they're pretty amazing. And Annie's dad's <laughs> turned 90 and Annie's mother is 86. Late eighties, let's just call her a bit of a. I don't think she listens, but um, and they still put on the full Christmas lunch, and as tradition will be, uh, what usually happens is um, Brendan reads out the crappy jokes from the bonbons, <laughs> uh, you know, and you could imagine me reading those out. I expect Mark, and then we have the big spread of the the. Um, the the cooked dinner the, the the hot traditional sort of dinner um and i always look forward to the christmas pudding and his mother makes a, a very good christmas pudding sauce um a citrus sauce that goes on the christmas pudding and to die for and i always have a couple of helpings of the christmas pudding and then as tradition <laughs> dictates um Brendan goes into the lounge room there and lies down and, and tends to fall asleep <laughs> or fall asleep <laughs> on the floor after a few too many Christmas puddings and a few too many beverages. So that's what we do on our Christmas Day, mate. We had a bit and of what a um, uh, bit less um, uh, social because um, we both our boys ended up with the coronavirus and so we uh, isolated from them while they were isolating from society and um and they've recovered well it will excellent it, uh, it, they were a little bit sick for a few days but um they did their time on their own and uh and they've uh, come out the other side so that's all very good news but as a consequence we've sort of had a little bit of a postponed family uh you know our intent is to get together maybe a month later than we normally would so our, our actual, you know, we Zoomed on Christmas Day. Yes. Um, but it's not the same as uh, the joy of um, those, that Christmas pudding and uh, beer full-filled belly. You just um, want to wrap it up all those presents, don't you? 
<laughs> of course. I, and I love uh, tearing the paper off and uh, and seeing what's inside. So all that all that's in our future, Brendan. You're like a puppy, a Labrador puppy, Mark. I could <laughs> see you there ripping uh-huh. the paper off and just enjoying ripping the wrapping and the boxes apart um, rather than the actual present that's inside. Yes. Well, good luck to you, and I'm sure that you'll um, – You'll make up for it when you when you catch up with them. Um, that will be good. And yeah, happy, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all our listeners. And let's hope it's a two oh two two is a better year than two oh two one mark as far as um, what's been happening in the world. Um, and I think we I had a bit of a, a review, Mark, and you probably see it in our little agenda there. But we might leave that to next week mark so we won't mention that i'm going to jump into the news items and this was an interesting one we've spoken a little bit about this at one stage previously haven't we mark manuka honey and the trademark with manuka honey and we we had an episode on manuka honey didn't we i have to look that up while you have a bit of a a ramble um shortly but australian honey producers have won a four-year trademark battle in in britain amid amid a long-running dispute with new zealand over who can claim the term manuka honey mark and the manuka honey appellation society representing a group of new zealand producers was trying to stop stop the australian beekeepers from selling products with the word manuka i suppose it's a, and it's a little and we have spoken about it before but it's a little bit like the champagne issue isn't it mark and and, and wines where you, have, you can only say you're a particular type of wine if if it's produced in that that region um and that's what they were hoping to do with manuka honey but um, they um the decision, um, as the Britain's Intellectual Property Office rejected the trademark application, saying there was no evidence the public believed the product was exclusively from New Zealand. So what do you think about that, Mark? Uh, Good, bad, a bit of both? Anything to do with marketing is bad, isn't it? Um, I, I, look, I think um, I feel for um, the pr- manuka is a Maori word, and um, and they they the word describes the the uh, leptosperm. I think is one of the tea trees that produces um, a particular flavour of honey, um, which has had attributed to it certain medicinal properties, um, and and I think. That's where it started, um, yes. and the Australians then jumped on board uh, pre- because we've got the same plant here. Um, the honey is essentially identical, as far as I understand, um, and so it's not, uh, you know, the, as you said, it's a bubbly wine um, from not from the Champagne district of France. Uh, it, it, if it's um, is it manuka honey if it's not produced in New Zealand? It's it's marketing. And yes. I'm, I'm upset and I, that the people that created the market then have it ripped from underneath them by um, by other, you know, less imaginative people. That's my point of view. Yes, and episode 209, Mark, so not that long ago, our main topic was manuka honey and, and we had a little chat about honey use in wounds uh, and its benefit or not and whether or not manuka honey is better than any other types of honey. So head over to vetgurus.com and 
search for honey or episode 209 which was october the 1st 2021 last year mark it's it's last year's information but it's still still worthy to listen to <laughs> so that's my new story what do you have it was in, I was just going to quickly mention, I didn't realise that um, Manuka Honey sold for... Um, a lot of money. 500 bucks per kilo. Yep. No wonder they're fighting over, it in, fighting, fighting over it in various jurisdictions around the world as far as um, the trademark and name is going. Yeah. It's a honey pot, Mark. Oh, God. It's a honey pot for those <laughs> I thought producers. you'd exhausted that urge with the, the <laughs> Christmas crackers. you with a bang. There we go. What have you got for us? Um, can dogs actually learn words? Um, this, the, I love this area of research, Brendan, um, particularly because, uh, you know, as humans, we consider language to be the, the um, you know, one of the defining differences between us and the rest of the animal kingdom. Um, but there are often, you know, very... Uh, uh, it's not as clear cut, I would imagine, um, as most people think. There are lots of circumstances. I mean, even at work, we have people uh, bring birds to us, and the birds are very. Some of those birds seem to have a conversation. They seem to um, know the right words to say at the right time. Um, so, so this is quite an involved experiment where they've taken uh, dog breeds. Um, that are well known to be above average intelligence um, and then ask the owners to conduct a series of tests to see how the whether the dogs learn words um, and they got increasingly complex so during their normal playtime um, they were given toys um, and um, and the the um, the toys were given uh, names um, and the dogs were, their dog's ability to recognise the objects by going and getting them after they were given the name um, was tested. All the dogs successfully uh, learnt um, the names of uh, five or six toys in a week. Um, and then the tests got increasingly difficult where they're asked to learn um, 12 toys and all the dogs were able to learn 11 or 12 toys in a week learn the names of them um, and then the owners put the dogs away uh, put the toys away for a month and conducted the experiment again and nearly all the dogs remembered all the names of the toys um, and of uh, the, the, the first six toys then they put the toys away for another two months and the dogs were still able to recall um the, the names of those toys 60 days after they'd learned them. Um, so this is, even for those relatively intelligent breeds, these are pretty impressive things. Uh, genius dogs, they were calling them, could quickly learn the names of 12 new toys in a single week, and the dogs retained long-term memory of these toy names, suggesting the dogs successfully learned to associate the words with the objects. Um, that's pretty impressive stuff. Um, and it does also uh, make me think about the additional levels of, you know, uh, language. Um, do, do the dogs understand uh, the, the, not just to, what was the turn of phrase used in the article? The, 
Um, Unconscious visual cues as well. Is that what you're going to talk yeah. about? Uh, yes. Well, just and also the, uh, the 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 way that baboons can distinguish between real and nonsense words, um, and a recognised precursor to the ability to lead, uh, to read, um, and um, uh, the fact that. Um, the way that they learnt this stuff, uh, the ability to process the words and understand what people means, uh, people mean when they say these things, give the dogs, uh, give researchers the ability to sort of understand the simple uh, beginnings of language, how how uh, um, either humans or dogs process uh, speech. Yeah, it's fascinating, and it just points to, you know, how not different we are to animals. I think. Genius dogs, Mark. They need to do a study with dumb dogs next time and can cross. <laughs> are you cross prepared to put your, your name to the <laughs> list? Not your dogs. Your dogs are not dumb. Um, which, breeds, which breeds would you put up for the dumb dog? Yeah. Well, were they saying it was just certain breeds? or? or yeah, yeah. No, they, they that picked just, out. Uh, they call them as genius German ones. shepherds, okay. German shepherds, silky terriers, and what was the other one? German Shepherds, Yorkshire Terriers, and other breeds. Other breeds, yeah. I like that. Yes. Um, I just worry about calling them genius dogs. Um, it gives the dumb dogs a complex, I think. Complex. <laughs> yes. Um, interesting article, though. And um, what was the university it was done at, Mark? Uh, uh, you need to read that out for me. It's in about the fourth um, paragraph. <laughs> I couldn't quite um, get where it was from. Oh. We will link to that, Mark. We will link <laughs> to that. It's quite we'll, a difficult word to pronounce. It Lorand. Yes. I don't know. In Budapest, University of Budapest. <laughs> um, it was. Good. Thank you very much, much, Mark. Now we need to jump into the main topic, um, which everybody's waiting for. We're going to talk about chickens, chooks, as we call them here in Australia, pet chickens or backyard chickens. And we did have two previous, um, two podcasts, didn't we, on on chooks previously, part one and part two, which is episode 126 and 127, way back in March 2020, Mark. So we may touch on a couple of the points that we mentioned there, but you wanted to particularly chat about chickens because of a your contact with them recently, didn't you? We had, Kate and I, uh, as we've talked about, uh, have been travelling, and we've we've just done a little house sit for a couple of weeks over Christmas while we were staying away from um, uh, our COVID infected home, and um, and part of the deal with this house sit was to look after the backyard chickens, and so we've had chickens at home before, um, and. Uh, and so we have personal experience uh, dealing with our own chickens, but that's a few years ago. And so um, working with these chickens uh, at the house that we're at has, um, has just reminded me of a, a, uh, a couple of the husbandry aspects that I thought it would be good for us to talk about. And it reminds, reminded me as well um, of, of how many people, like it is a booming um uh, area of veterinary interest, animal husbandry interest, and more and more people, I think, are, are keeping chickens in their backyard. And um, and so that it's always good to uh, set up some of those husbandry principles in the first instance to limit the the uh, 
the problems with uh, various health issues that can develop if um, if you're not careful from the get-go. Yes, I think at one stage it was regarded as a bit of a craze, wasn't it? Um, everybody wanted to have a backyard chicken, but it's certainly here to stay. Although in my area, Mark, of the woods or the suburbs, um, we end up with a lot of headless chickens, um, no matter... <laughs> No matter how um, well they try and fence them off, we have some wily foxes um, around this area, and I'm sure you do in, in your area as well, Mark. So we, we unfortunately have a lot of locals who end up losing all of their chickens because the foxes get in there and they tend to make a bit of a mess of them. We end up seeing a few of them in our clinic, um, the ones that are lucky to survive for it. So, yeah. So well, but, I think that's a good point, Brendan, because I think one of the things before anyone uh, gets chickens, uh, and particularly at the first instance they come into the veterinary hospital, um, uh, and it's often something, you know, existing clients will uh, bring their dog in for a vaccination and mention that they're thinking of getting chickens. And so it's a good opportunity just to um, make the point that they need a secure um, coop, uh, a secure chook yard um, that uh, whether it's dogs or foxes, um, these urban um, uh, roaming uh, canines, um, they seem to be particularly attracted to uh, chickens and uh, the chook run. And um, if it's insecure at all, then there will be a disaster. And, and they do turn into uh, veterinary cases. The trauma needs to be addressed. And, and often, as you said, it, uh, um, the, the chickens can end up um, losing their life to these predators. And foxes in particular have a reputation for, um, uh, you know, slaughtering all the chickens in a particular run and maybe only taking one off to to consume then there so it is important to make sure that they have a very secure run and there's a number of commercial ones now um that uh you know the 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 typical uh chook shed um that uh, has been in australian backyards for many years um now there are a number of um commercially available uh um you know, things on wheels that uh, you can get the chickens into at night so they're completely protected and and uh, allow them to roam around in the day when it's uh, when it's much safer. It does tend to be at night these predators come in and cause problems. So, um, so yeah, I, I would imagine your woodworking, Brendan, you could knock up one of these um, backyard chook runs. Um, there'd be, there'd be <laughs> the, a plan online for them, wouldn't there? Oh, the, lots of plans online. The, it, it is good. It is great, actually, to see um, clients bringing in their chickens, and they're often much loved chickens, um, not not just the ones that have been attacked by foxes, um, but they really care for their chooks. Um, so I think it's an important point we always tend to make is that don't don't underestimate the people's um, interest or value or love um, for their pets regardless of what species they have there mark so let's talk a little bit about um general i think general preventative health um it'd, it'd be a good one to cover for chooks in the backyard mark um considering you've been looking after some what things did sort of sprung to mind when you were um out feeding the chooks um, as you were looking doing the house sitting well the first thing was that uh the flock 
that uh, we're looking after has all been um, has had uh, vaccinations as young birds. They were obtained from uh, breeders, uh, not from you know not from a large commercial place, uh, but from uh, breeders of significant number, and they had been vaccinated particularly for uh, Marek's disease, um, but also uh, for um, fowl pox. And um, those uh, vaccines, uh, they need to, obviously, Marek's disease is, uh, it's a very common for us to see unvaccinated um, chickens. Um, sometime around 14 weeks of age, they'll start to show um, neurologic signs, particularly weakness, um, and, uh, and it's too late by then to treat them. They need to get those vaccines very young in life. So the first preventative health thing I would suggest is a discussion with the suppliers of the particular breed of chicken you're looking at um, and make sure they're vaccinated whatever is appropriate for your area. Most backyard chickens we just recommend uh, Marex and uh, fowl pox but um, on occasions they'll get things like uh, infectious bronchitis uh, vaccines as well. And what great point what do you recommend as far as general setup? of that chicken coop or the enclosure for them what what are some of the key points that not necessarily what, what was right or wrong with the one that you recently um saw but what what, what things do you um often see clients fall in fell off and not doing correctly for instance <laughs> Um, well, I think the the you know the the coop, the nighttime accommodation, the 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 enclosures generally divided into a, a daytime run, um, which sometimes can be movable or sometimes fixed. Um, some chickens will just run around the entire yard, but then the nighttime coop needs to first of all, as we said before, be secure, but also um, it needs to be easy to clean. Um, it needs to uh, um, drain well. It needs not to uh, accumulate puddles of water. It needs to have raised areas where the chickens feel safest if they can roost a distance off the ground. Um, and so perches that are way up the uh, the top, however high the the coop is, um, those high perches and are important for the chickens to feel safe and not be stressed. And of course the the nesting boxes, the egg boxes, they need to be easily accessed and not, not you know, so that uh, the birds are not disturbed by the collection of the eggs. The eggs are uh, easy to collect. Interestingly enough, the in the coop for the chickens that I'm that Kate and I are looking after at the moment, um, there's a. a um, a trapdoor arrangement which allows the chickens out into the greater run area. Um, but the local ravens have learnt how to pull up the um, the uh, trapdoor and, and get in and, and get the eggs. And so each morning Kate and I have to be on alert to ensure that the, um, the uh, ravens don't get in and, and uh, scramble the eggs before we get to collect them. But see, things like that are design features. Um, uh, if you talk to uh, chicken, uh, particularly the breeders, but um, there's often Facebook groups and those problems locally, what uh, predators might be causing problems, um, designing the enclosure to ensure that then their opportunity to cause a problem is limited, um, that can make a huge difference to how uh, healthy the chickens are and how little stress they have to deal with and, and how much enjoyment you get out of them, Brendan. 
interesting story about the smart birds there, Mark, getting into <laughs> those eggs from the other birds there. Um, so what about feeding? What, what, um, what's your general recommendations as a, an adequate diet or a good diet, um, both environmentally, um, enriching, enriching for them, but also nutritionous, nutritional um, for the bird? It's a, um, it's a, like, um, many of the animals that we get to, to see, um, there's a lot of myth and, and, uh, um, uh, um, old tales about um, what the best thing to do, how the, how best it is to feed the, the animals in question. I think, um, I like the idea, particularly because so much research has been done in, in uh, as a result of um, the commercial poultry industry, there is a huge amount of information that's known about what is good nutrition uh, for our chickens. And because the chickens we keep in our backyards do produce um, eggs, which are a huge investment in nutrients, um, it is important to feed them particularly well and I like the old um, uh, 70-30 rule Brendan I like to uh, feed the chickens a good high quality um, uh, commercial poultry pellet um, these pellets are generally um, uh, mixed from uh, a number of grains wheat and uh, corn and uh, often sunflower seeds added um, and they're well balanced as a basis to the diet but once you've done that um, a good what I think of as good healthy table scraps um, the all the green stuff um, all the bits and pieces of pasta the rice that's left over from human food that can be tossed to them as well um, and um, and of course they scrounge through the garden and and catch a fair bit of their own stuff and so making sure they have a run that's big enough that they can forage on their own scratch around and is a chicken things really important thing yes and speaking of accessing things and scratching around, Mark, um, what other preventative sort of bits do you recommend um, for clients <laughs> to do? And I think you know what we're going to get into here. Well, I love the way that in our podcast um, there's sort of two broad groups of questions that you ask me. The first one is one that clearly leads to an answer that I'm going to be able to supply relatively easy. And the other one is where I've got no idea what you're talking about. But of course, in this instance, you're, um, you're alluding to um, the fact that uh, chickens being uh, terrestrial foragers going through stuff on the ground, often in, uh, you know, jungle fowl is where domestic chickens have evolved from. So they love to get into those um, moist bits of the garden, dark bits of the garden. And of course, the parasite eggs can survive in those locations and and uh, gastrointestinal parasites, uh, uh, helminths, coccidia in particular, all these things are uh, uh, really serious problems to monitor um, and attempt to keep under control really well. I think that um, uh, in the first instance, I think maintaining an area of sufficient size or changing the area that they forage over is the first step in making sure that, uh, you know, uh, parasite contamination is minimal so making sure that you move the if it's a movable run moving it so that uh, 
um, the numbers can't build up. Um, if it's if the chickens are free roaming around the yard, then it's really important to make sure that there's not uh, wet patches remaining in the yard because um, you know nothing kills those parasite eggs uh, in the environment quite as quickly as desiccation and sunlight in most instances. So um, that's the first step. But I do think that you've got to have a little bit of a plan for routine um, uh, worming um, and coccidia treatment. And there are commercial products that can be added to their drinking water. And, you know, in the routine sort of situation, that would be roughly at the, the uh, change of season, um, once every three months. Um, but it's um, but it's good to get a faecal sample taken to the local uh, veterinary hospital and and uh, get a vet to have a look at it and determine what parasites the birds are dealing with. Yes. Now, talk to me about eggs, Mark. What's the <laughs> failures that people, backyard chicken keepers, um, do wrong um, when they're looking after their chooks at home and initially most people are obviously purchasing their chickens in order to gain eggs from their birds but often it ends up being a a valuable member of the family regardless of whether or not it's spitting out eggs every day or not but but um what's what's your quick rundown on um ensuring that um that chicken is both healthy and that it does lay eggs it's a very good question, Brendan. The first thing is um, is exercise. That I think that chickens that are sedentary and don't get enough exercise, um, they certainly will produce eggs, but the inadequacy of their muscle tone means that they're at increased risk of developing reproductive problems, having trouble laying the eggs. Um, so I'd first of all make sure that the birds have a decent space to forage in and can get significant exercise. And then we highlighted before those commercial diets, and one of the features of those things is um, is adequate levels of calcium. There's a huge amount of calcium that, and protein that goes into the making of those eggs, and diets that are inadequate in those things will inevitably lead to uh, failure of production. And also, because the bird would preferentially put those resources into the eggs, the failure of the health of the bird. So um, nutrition, particularly appropriate levels of calcium um, and uh, protein, um, and of course, uh, supplementing you know the the access to cooked eggshells um, uh, in the scraps that they get, and uh, possibly even some cuttlefish supplemental calcium that they can ingest and absorb what they need. Um, they're good things as well. And the last thing about egg production is that's often forgotten. Um, is that eggs are about um, 80% water. And so uh, a 60-gram egg is going to take an extra 50 mils of water straight out of the bird. And so um, just making sure that the water bowl hasn't turned over, that they have adequate supplies of water um, are critical, first of all, for the development of the egg, but also um, the normal function of the oviduct um, the suppleness, the normal contractions. Um, if the bird's dehydrated, then um, those things are going to add to reproductive tract problems. And what do you recommend for the actual nest where they are going to lay 
the eggs, Mark? What are your tips and tricks for that? Well, I think the the first thing is that um, uh, they they definitely like a, a enclosed area. They if they're not given one, they'll go and seek out a, 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 a an area that's under a, a a shrub or something that gives them some sense of protection. So a good stout um, box and lining the box with um. Uh, um, when we had our chickens, we would use the universal substrate. We'd use a little bit of uh, uh, recycled newspaper kitty litter on the bottom um, and then some straw over the top of it. It's really important. One of the problems that I see quite regularly with chickens is that nest box straw is uh, left and left and left and becomes contaminated. And because the uh, broody chickens sit in it for long periods of time, it provides the perfect environment that's warm, um, that has suitable substrate and has a ready meal for many of those external parasites, mites and lice. Um, and so making sure those nest boxes are regularly completely cleaned out and the substrate in them is changed um, is critical to preventing those external parasites. Great points, as always, Mark. You're a wisdom. You're a font of <laughs> knowledge there. I'm going to jump to, because we're going to make this one very quick, and punchy mark we're going to jump to end of life back to our usual subject um how do you euthanize these pet chickens mark what's the process both wow. um, technically as a vet but also what do you tell the client well it's 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 more of the same it's the stuff that we do all the time um we want to uh um, sedate the bird, um, then anaesthetize it, render it unconscious, and then deliver an overdose of barbiturate anaesthetic. One of the things about chickens um, that really is um, an important communication point is that almost that, you know, our, our regular three-part euthanasia protocol that, um, that we use for most species these days, um, and Really, Brendan, it, it very rarely, once I'm able to, um, you know, technically uh, obtain the intravenous access, that that uh, particular set of steps generally gives um, a good and peaceful death. Um, one of the things about chickens is that they do, as they uh, as the brain becomes hypoxic, um, they definitely... Um, can struggle, um, and even a well-sedated, well-anesthetized bird um, delivered a suitable overdose of barbiturate anaesthetic um, may not necessarily pass away uh, peacefully, and it's very important to prepare people for for that. Um, you know, sometimes it's a serious episode of flapping around, even though the yes. bird's been deeply sedated. I definitely find that if the bird is not sedated um, and you just anaesthetize it uh, with isoflurane um, and then deliver the the uh, barbiturate overdose that the the likelihood of that um, excitation the physical excitation if not mental um, is much higher sedation sedating the birds beforehand um, with uh, butorphanol or telazole or one of the the uh, uh, intramuscular injectable um, pre-medicants definitely lessens Sedatives, the likelihood of those birds. Yeah. Um, 
I knew I was going to say that's the last um, little little topic or, or comment that I wanted you to make, but there is one more um, that I think we should always mention with chickens because most people, as we mentioned, purchase them to in order to produce eggs. Um, the warning regarding medication use, Mark, in these to the clients. It's not just the clients, are in particular antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. The the yes. um the possibility that antibiotics could uh, first of all enter the human food chain, um, and uh, possibly be um, you know incorporated in some um, uh, the worst the worst case scenario the the um, disaster scenario would be that um, some of these products get incorporated in uh, some antibiotic contaminated products get incorporated in um, items for export um, and so it's absolutely important that uh, veterinarians uh, are aware of their responsibilities with uh, withholding periods um, for various antibiotics but also um, the use of those medications in backyard poultry um, as food producing animals um, is under a different um, regime and, and veterinarians who do that work need to seek out those bits of information and, and it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and, and make sure that they're compliant with the, the, um, the, the first of all, the withdrawal periods, but there are also um, some absolute uh, uh, mandates to not use particular antibiotics in backyard poultry. So important that as veterinarians we're aware of all those things Absolutely. And it's a bit of a tricky one. It can be a bit of a minefield. It's often a topic that is discussed at the exotic vet conferences, isn't it, Mark, about antibiotic use, especially in, in um, well, birds generally, um, but certainly the the ones where we're producing eggs that might may be ingested um, with them. But it's, it's something that we need to bear in mind. Any final comments, Mark, about... Um, feeding the chooks that you want to ch chat about before we head off well the only other besides the ravens brendan the only other thing that we've got to watch out for the chickens here um where we are house sitting the, the goannas i had to get a goanna out of the chook oh. the other day so um uh, yeah um being aware of the local predators the ones fortunately the goanna was just after the eggs and none of the chickens were upset but um yeah a secure coop can make a world of difference. Well, I think with that, we will head off and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.